Hello fellow time travelers, as of this episode we are now part of the Direction Point podcast network, a podcast network specifically devoted to Doctor Who podcasts including the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, the Police Box in a Junkyard podcast, and Time Streams. You can find the Direction Point network at directionpoint.org. Check out all of our sister podcasts and enjoy your travels. JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking Who. They all say who. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual... Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hi, this is Sylvester McCoy, and I play Doctor Who number seven on Doctor Who. Well, yeah, I could play Doctor Who number seven on something else. Anyway, you're listening to a rambling Doctor Who for the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels with a book. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the key task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That one actually worked somehow. <laughs> My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally key three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. <laughs> that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. Hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. 
I am here to be, in the words of Ian Martyr, a vicious sizzling sound. Oh, God. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them. Just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've kept them stored with your crown jewels, guarded by a monstrous Shrivenzal. But enough about your genitals. That's pretty classy, actually, for storage for your Target books. Well, I do try. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumanall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Yes, thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We now begin a new season with Season 16 and the Key to Time story arc, starting with Ian Martyr's novelization of Robert Holmes' script, The Rebus Operation. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Rebus Operation, adapted by Ian Martyr from the script by Robert Holmes that aired from 9278 to 92378, published by Target Books in December 1979. As of this recording in September of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. Now, a lot is going on with this one, including the beginning of only the first of two times that an entire season of classic Doctor Who is devoted to a story arc. And no, the Dalek's master plan doesn't count because it was not a full season. (laughs) It just felt like one. Here, it's the quest for the six segments of the key to time. And to help the Doctor in this quest, we get the new companion, Romana Dvaratralunda, or Romana for short, or Fred if you want to make her happy. Romana is a time lady played by Mary Tam, a British actress of Estonian descent, who was born on March 22, 1950, and who'd been a classmate of Louise Jameson's in drama school. She'd started her acting career in repertory, and by the time she took on this role, she'd also been in a number of movies, including Tales That Witness Madness in 1973 and The Odessophile in 1974. She originally did not want the role because she saw the companion as simply a damsel in distress, but producer Graham Williams assured her that Romana would be just as capable as the Doctor. By the end of the season, though, she felt that the character had reverted to that type and decided to leave, even though the character would continue, but more on that and on Mary Tam herself soon (laughs) enough. Interestingly, her character was not created because of Rodan, the Time Lady character from the previous season. Instead, Elizabeth Sladen was invited to return as Sarah Jane Smith for this season, but she declined, and we got Romana as a result. Talk about a case of a choice between two really good things. (laughs) Either way, it would have been amazing, but as you will see, we end up getting Romana for at least as long as Sarah Jane. Speaking of former companions of the Fourth Doctor, Ian Martyr, who played Harry Sullivan alongside Sarah Jane, was tapped to write the novelization for this one. An odd choice, really, given that this was only Martyr's third book so far, and the first that didn't feature his own companion character in it. This is, of course, the eighth book in story order, meaning that we have two more coming from him after this one. What's odder 
is that Terrence Dix didn't do this one, despite Dix's stated enjoyment for adapting the scripts of Robert Holmes, though he will novelize the second of Holmes' two scripts for the season. There's honestly nothing in David J. Howe's The Target Book about why this happened, though given that there were only seven novelizations released that year, but Dix wrote five of them, he might have felt he had more than enough work on his plate at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot to do. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Dalton, would you be willing to oblige us? I'll do it, but I'm going to let you know I'm going to have trouble saying Romana's name. (laughs) Everyone does, including the actress. I might just say Romana instead of trying to get that out. (laughs) That's fine. She doesn't like that. She wants Fred. (laughs) Okay. Reluctantly canceling his well-earned holiday, the doctor sets off in the TARDIS to trace and reassemble the six segments of the key to time on which the stability of the entire universe depends. Assisted by the argumentative Romana and K-9, he lands on the planet Rebos in search of the first segment and finds himself entangled in the machinations of two sinister strangers, Garon and the Graf Vindaka. Who are they? Is Garen simply a shady confidence trickster dealing in interplanetary real estate? Is the Graf Vindaka just a power-crazed exile bent on revenge? Or are they both really agents of the Black Guardian, intent upon seizing the precious key in order to throw the universe into eternal chaos? Risking his life within the monster-infested catacombs of Rebos, the Doctor has to use all his wit and ingenuity to find out. Dot, dot, dot. That is a lengthy back cover for a lengthy book, isn't it? That is probably one of the longest back covers we've had. And it basically tells the entire plot. But before we get angry listeners writing in, Ian Martyr renders the Graf's name as Graf Vindaka, K-A. On screen, it is pronounced as Graf Vindaka, and I seem to recall in the credits, the K is actually the letter K and not K-A-Y. But in case anyone gets annoyed with me or the panelists for saying Graf Vindaka, we're doing it because Ian Martyr has to be weird and contrary and change everything. Yeah. I mean, I guess technically you could still pronounce it K with the, the long A, but yeah, it's it's Ka. Yeah. Yeah, it's essentially that. And that isn't the only change he's going to make, obviously, but we'll we'll get to those things. So, Allison, what was your first impression when you got this book? Well, Dalton's fine dramatic reading got me all the way through it because I got into the third paragraph. Who are they? Is Garon simply this? Is this person that? Like, well, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> so I wasn't terribly interested in the questions about all new characters and all new situations and thought I would just read it. Uh, and go from there. So I'm curious if the episode has such candle power as the front cover does. Yes, it actually does. Lots of drippy wax. Well, thought it might be kind of a a more gothic story than it turns out to be. um, Not the drippy wax so much. But yeah, it does have that kind of look to it that Rebos is supposed to be a very kind of medieval type place. And obviously it is if they've got their own Galilean conspiracy going conspiracy god damn it 
Galilean heresy going on. That's going to be your blockbuster uh, Da Vinci Code type series, the Galilean conspiracy. See, now I can't cut it because you made a joke about it. Okay. <laughs> you still can. I mean, it's, it's pretty you... good, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying that you're leaving money on the table. Yeah, well, I'm always leaving money on the table, but yeah. You know when to fold them, no one, no, really no one to hold them, no one to fold them. Yeah, I'm not playing that song in the podcast. Hell no. We have had a rough day, and we are doing our best. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and thank exactly. you for your patience. Yes, we'll eventually get there. Oh, by the way, that's a Shrivenzal on the cover. Yes. And it's much better on the cover than it is on screen, because on screen it is some poor, unfortunate stuntman inside a rubber costume, crawling around on hands and knees like a dog. And sometimes it even looks like one. <laughs> so... Yeah. I guess the good thing is that for at least the second half, it's mostly kind of hinted at being around, so we don't have to worry about seeing it for half of the series. No, this is true. <laughs> Absolutely true. What was your first impression, Dalton? Like Allison, the cover was giving me kind of a Castlevania feel. Um, <laughs> you know, the doctor is a stand in for one of the Belmonts and. Uh, yeah, the, the Shrivenzel being <laughs> one of the demon monsters he had to fight. Just from the back cover, though, it immediately kind of got me excited, even before we got your notes, realizing that this was going to be a larger story arc, mm -hmm. that it tells us that there are going to be six segments of this key that the Doctor is going to be searching because as difficult as some of the newer series storylines can be, <laughs> I do like whenever a show has kind of an overarching story to tie things together without it just being episodic. Right. Not that I don't enjoy episodic things. I am looking forward to where this goes, seeing what other kind of situations the Doctor gets in as he's searching for the other segments. And yeah, seeing how his relationship furthers with Romana since she is his companion given to him by the White Guardian. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I mean, apart from K-9, and I think I'm right in saying this, apart from Susan and K-9, she is his first non-human companion. Technically. Because Leela was a human descendant. Do we ever know for certain that Susan is not a human? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Susan is definitely from Gallifrey. <clears throat> in a later story, when she returns to Gallifrey, she recognizes a landmark there, so she could only do that if she were from Gallifrey. So it's definitely confirmed. But whether she's a time lady or not, eh, let's not even get into that again. Is that, is that, <sighs> is that kind of a, are you a, casting aspersions on her character? Not really a time lady, kind of a time trollop or a... No, no, no. You can no, cut this it's... joke. I didn't quite deliver it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just that we've spent so much time on that question, and it's one of the least interesting questions possible about a companion that hasn't appeared in a book that we've read in, what, four years now? Oh, don't so. throw down challenges. I'll come up with even less interesting questions <laughs> for you to music on. Oh, I know. Well... With Romana, we know right away that she's a time lady because one of the first things she mentions is that she went through the academy and got triple alphas. Yes. 
Exactly. So we, we would, know. Would the doctor have a double gamma or? On his third try. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On screen, it's worse. She says they scrape by with 60% of the third attempt. And that sounds like the doctor. He'd be spending mm-hmm. too much of his time hanging out with the master in Shibugan bars and doing things that weren't school related. Yeah. Even the first doctor would have done that in his youth. We could see that. Yeah. Because William Hartner was a bit of a party guy when he was younger. In fact, that banter between them, I might as well just jump right into this. This is not Ian Martyr's best work. And I say that only because there's so much that's still here, but there's so much that's missing. What's missing is good stuff. And what's changed is good stuff. That's usually good when Ian Martyr's doing it, because sometimes it greatly improves the story. And he's done it with the Robert Holmes script before with Ark and Space. He's doing it again here, but he's taking out some of the more charming bits. I'm getting way ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Listeners, I, just to let you know, it's been a bit of a couple of weeks. I've had a sinus infection for four weeks now, just now getting over it. I've had two three teeth actually extracted in the last week and various other things so yeah and then i got this book thrown at me thinking oh this is going to be great i kind of like rebos operation and i know i like ian martyr and somehow the planets did not align this time (laughs) or should i say the ice crystals in the sky because that's what they think they are on rebos where do we start with this one? I'm going to let you all start because obviously you already know where I'm going to start. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking forward to it because I remember enjoying Ark in Space, which we read a little over a year ago now. And I uh, very much enjoyed the, the Ian Martyr uh, novelizations that we had read. I, act, I say that as if I remembered more than one. That's the one that I remember off the top of my <laughs> head. But you know, I often say, I'm not sure if this book is as funny as I thought it was, but it hit me in the right place. I was, you know, interested in a light adventure and this was a good one. Bless this book's heart. It couldn't possibly have won. It did not hit me at the right time. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually was enjoying it at first because the impression I left with is that he made a pleasant read out of an absolutely interminable and pointless story. <laughs> that he did what he could. Now, I, once again, I haven't read the script and I haven't seen the, the episodes, but I cannot remember a time that I was less interested in the actual story than this one. Hmm. <laughs> I, I could see that. I and that wasn't true at the impression. very beginning. I just kept waiting for it to become more engaging, and that just never really materialized, other than, I'm going to mispronounce names here, Garen and... Unstoff. Yes, I found Garen and Unstoff to be by far the highlight mm-hmm. of the entire book, and I enjoyed their banter in that they are English criminals in space. Yes. Um, uh, petty criminals. And I felt that the, the humor associated with those characters carried us through, but I felt like I was in trouble for something and being punished with this story. <laughs> and how do you know you're not? But <laughs> no, no, you're not. You're not. Not this time anyway. Here's the thing. They are just as charming on screen, but even more so. Imagine all those adversarial bits between the two of them such as when Garen threatens him in the catacombs when he finds he's got the graph's gold on him. That never happens. They have this lovely, warm kind of uncle and nephew type relationship on screen. And I got that sense from it. Yeah. For some reason, Martyr decided to up the tension between them a bit. So I'm not quite sure why. 
I would say it does still feel affectionate, but yes, that does make sense. She's also upped it between the Doctor and K-9, which is pretty amazing, because K-9 Mark II is a lot more tractable in some ways than K-9 Mark I was, but he's not here. He's absolutely not. He's already giving the Doctor the business from the very beginning of the book, so there's that. Okay, so... You felt that it was a bit of a slog then. What about you, Dalton? I agree. I Initially, the beginning of the story felt interesting. It felt like there was a lot to go with. You know, we had good characters. And then just as the story went along, basically the last half, anything in the catacombs just felt so drawn out and yeah. needlessly long. And I don't know that that's any fault of Ian Martyrs, you know, he's working with the script, he's working with what was given to him, mm -hmm. but I definitely felt like that second half just kept going, and they kept you know, we've talked about this in previous stories where they go back and forth and back and forth mm -hmm. and there was a little bit of that here, and I'm like, why? The tunnel runners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it happens on screen too, it does make up all of episode four and the tail end of episode three. But that's the thing. This is a four-parter. The length of this book is what's normally allocated to a six-parter. Because I had the same problem. And it doesn't help when you know the plot and you know what's coming next and you're like, oh my god, can we just get there, please? When you know the signposts are coming, but you're like, wait a minute, this road's a lot longer than I remember it being. And it occurs to me that I've, I never read this book before now. So that may explain why it is that I'm looking at it and saying, good God, why did Ian Martyr overwrite this to such a degree? It was only a four-parter. And Allison, you're absolutely right. It's a light and frothy bit of nonsense on screen. At the beginning, and then there is a lot of elders suffering and dying towards the end was actually, I think, the thing that I will come away remembering um, yeah. is that it gets really quite dark at the end. The monster eats a lot of guards, but not in a fun way, um, <laughs> as, as it is slowly beaten and crushed to death. And it just gets very dark in a way that has no weight and it just seems, I don't know if gratuitous is the word. I guess no, I didn't expect... I think you're right. Yes, gratuitous is the word. It is well, the word. <laughs> well, I, I, yet I was completely ungratified. It wasn't like adventurous violence. It was, I actually thought it was a cliche, but not terrible to have these two characters who are set up as science and religion. I didn't know they were both going to be burned in effigy. Yeah. There are two elderly people who suffer horrible deaths in a way that was not what I was looking for it on this particular day. You would not want Ian Martyr to be the dungeon master at your D&D &D game. <laughs> well, once again, this is how the book is hitting me, but it was too dark for a light adventure story, but it was not in any way profound. Maybe that's what's bugging me. Yes. It wasn't especially symbolic in the way that, that might have been interesting. I guess there is Benro's death of self-sacrifice that, that is symbolic in some ways. I think so. But I think that may be the problem. I think Ian Martyr is trying to make this book more significant because it's the beginning of the key to time. Except on screen, that's really the only important thing about it. Otherwise, Robert Holmes has said, oh, we're introducing this new MacGuffin. Let's do this kind of fun little heist type deal. The Reboss Operation, the operation being a heist. And it's meant to be this kind of almost goofy type of story. 
even the bits in the catacombs, they get serious, but they never get as dark as they do on the page where his martyr decides, <laughs> everything's dark down there, let's flood the catacombs with blood while we're at it. It's like, oh, for God's sake. Let's have an old lady shoot herself in the face with a cannon. Let's burn <laughs> this old man. Yeah, uh, just... yeah Binro doesn't, uh, he does die, obviously, and he does get killed by these people in the story but he doesn't have half of his body burned away as he does here on the page you're like oh no not benro this shouldn't have happened to him i will say that there was some interesting development and exploration with the seeker where it was close to the chest whether or not she was a fraud or she was just a crazy person or she was forced to perform this part and we didn't really get that sort of revelation to the end so that that was that was somewhat engaging mm -hmm. and i i love that character on screen she also doesn't die as horrible a death as she does on the page but the fact that holmes does something really interesting here he sets up that dichotomy that you were talking about between science and superstition and they both end up right Binro is right about the stars he's right about rebus circling a sun and the seeker is right only one will come out of the catacombs alive. It won't be her. And I wasn't sure if the revelation was going to be that she truly did have this paranormal insight or that she was leading them into a trap Oh, in some way. Now that would have been interesting. She's not quite as crazy on screen as she is on the page either. On, on the page, she seems like they brought in some homeless person with a tarot deck, but... <laughs> no. But like, the quote I have written down here that's not my usual, you know, sort of light jaunty banter is clawing and spitting and shrieking curses at the top of her lungs the seeker was dragged struggling through the hall of the dead and brutally kicked and prodded into the tunnel and yeah i just i wasn't in the 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 mood for a brutal kicking and, and prodding yeah and that doesn't happen there was this interesting dichotomy of she is sometimes treated as the priestess and then other times she's just physically abused and talk about using her for target practice if she turns out to be a fraud mm -hmm. after they force her into this situation well the graph says so, that so that makes sense yeah so we have two, two different parties here but it was kind of a sort of interesting idea of how the person who seems very powerful as a sacred person can quickly turn up in a different situation it reminded me of rachel summers character oh <laughs> in Claremont, in Claremont X Men. Oh God, Rachel Summers. In the dystopia where she's forced to hunt the other mutants. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I didn't like that story either. No, so. <laughs> no, it's also very dark. It's just such a weird contrast to Garen and on stuff. And again, it's even when this story goes dark, it goes Robert Holmes dark. So it's the same sort of darkness that we saw happen in Talons of Wing Chiang. When we saw that story go dark, it didn't necessarily bring the lighter moments of the story down. But that's because Terrence Dix knows what Robert Holmes' style is, and he knows not to bring the lighter parts down to the darkness. But Ian Martyr doesn't quite, especially at this point in his writing career, he doesn't quite have that down yet. I couldn't figure out if he was doing a good job with an awful story. Or it was a story he just didn't know what to do with. He's doing a not-so-great job with a pretty decent story. Unlike the next Robert Holmes script that we're going to get, but we'll, we'll get there. That is going to be Terrence Sticks, and there's just no saving that one. In this case, the story isn't dire, it's just very light and frothy. Ian Martyr doesn't do light and frothy at all. 
He's not that writer. Which is perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's usually been the things that we liked about the other stories that we got from him were the ways that he expanded it and really gave us the details and the characterizations that we love. But yeah, with this one, it could have been 30 pages shorter Mm -hmm. and would have still been just as engaging without being so heavy handed and without feeling so bloated. Uh I felt like with Ark in Space, he gave a strong sense of atmosphere and of peril and gravity. (laughs) Haha, no pun intended. (laughs) Here we didn't have any of that. It was just kind of a long slogging grind. Not peril, just kind of light gore. Yeah. And normally I would think, oh, well, given the week we've had, (laughs) maybe it's us, but looking at the Goodreads reviews as well. It could be both. I think it's just the way this book strikes people. As a matter of fact, I hadn't asked Jim Sangster to join us on one of these, and I told him what was coming up, and I told him Rebus Operation, he was like, "Uh uh-uh, no. (laughs) I, I like Ian Martyr's work, I do not like that book at all. And I heard a couple of people say that about it. So, I think it's just the book. And maybe it feels like it drops out from under one a bit towards the end, because I actually do have quotes written down for the beginning of, you know, Romana saying, you know, you realize that your sarcasm is merely an adjustive stress reaction, thinking, oh, I resemble that remark. <laughs> and, you know, have, it was nice to have someone who's condescending to the Baker doctor for a change instead of the other way around. And then we have like this great Garen and Onstoff dynamic. And, you know, young Onstoff, he's a, he's a dreadful ham. And the mix of their different accents and whatnot, they try for different occasions that are never quite right. And then that just sort of <laughs> trails off. And I I thought we got very little Romana for the second half of the book, other than she tries to do things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes she screams and passes out, sometimes she doesn't. But it felt like all of the promise was up front. She's not bad the second half, it's just she could be any companion. Yeah. And there's there's the bit in the second half when the doctor is disguised as one of the Levithian guards, and he keeps having these little asides to himself. God, I hate that. it just feels so out of place. Yeah, it really just is. Just with, within the context of the story. Now, I could see the doctor saying these things, but with everything else that is going on, it just felt so weird. Yeah. And you're right to zero in on that because that's all Ian Martyr. He added all of those. That does not happen on screen. They don't seem to quite fit the circumstance. And they yeah. don't. They're the sort of thing that Tom Baker would have ad-libbed on screen, but he wouldn't have been allowed to keep them in the production. (laughs) So I think it's Ian Martyr knowing Tom Baker's personality and thinking, oh, well, this is what he'd probably say in a situation like this. But no, it's a dangerous, deadly situation that the doctor is kind of inserting himself into here. He would not blow his cover or come close to blowing it as often as he does in that scene. It's ridiculous. As far as Romana goes, what do we think of her? I think we just said, or I just said. (laughs) Well, no, I didn't have a strongly positive or negative impression. At the beginning, I was interested. I I think a Rodan character might have been a little bit more interesting, but this could be interesting. And then I I thought there was such thin characterization after the, the first few exchanges that there wasn't anything strongly positive or negative for me. Yeah, It just felt like another companion that is kind of doesn't understand the doctor. So they're just quipping back at him 
But she's at least from Gallifrey. She at least understands where he's coming from in that sense. So she can be a little more intelligent about it, I guess. It feels very thin. It feels very much like she could have been replaced with any other character from Gallifrey, any other person. Well, we literally are told how thin and pale she <laughs> I don't know how this is going to bode for future stories with her. And I mean, and you already told us that the actress ended up leaving at the end of the season because of her basically becoming a damsel in distress. Yes. So I can only imagine. Yeah. From all accounts, she and Tom Baker had a marvelous working relationship, but she also didn't take any guff from him. So that was a lot of it right there. That and Tom Baker was just enamored of her because Mary Tam was a beautiful woman and would give it right back to him. But so does Romana. And you don't get that on the page. In fact, so much of those first few scenes between the Doctor and Romana are missing the spark on the page that they have on screen. Probably because Ian Martyr changes so much of their dialogue and so much of the quipping. The very first line she has is, My name is Ramona Varadna Lunda. I'm so sorry about that. Is there anything we can do? And that's brilliant. But Martyr changes it and makes it more adversarial, and it's not so much of a joke. Even the White Guardian's threat, and this is something that one of our Goodreads readers noted as well, when the Doctor says, What will happen to me if I refuse? The White Guardian says nothing. And the Doctor says nothing. And the White Guardian says... Nothing at all. Ever. And it's brilliant. It's this brilliant moment. On the page you get, You will not refuse, Doctor! (laughs) It's like, fucking hell. I thought it was a nice sort of creepy pastoral scene in the beginning. Well, it's, it's creepy, yes. But it's not nearly as low-key creepy on the page as it is on screen because <laughs> Robert creepy. Holmes does that. <laughs> well, come to think of it, Robert Holmes didn't write that first scene. I completely forgot to mention that. That's that's Graham Williams and the script editor writing that very first scene. Well, we've talked before about stories that aren't bad but have zero new elements in them. This did feel like one of those. We've seen all of this before. We've seen every story element before. We haven't seen uh, Romana before, but there are character types that we've seen many times before, and it's not horrible but there was nothing cogent that really made the story hang together for me other than the fact that Romana this new person who we are going to see a lot of is there and that's probably the only thing I will remember about it later yeah and that's kind of the way it feels on screen to paraphrase Dalton it's meant to be a good read and a fun read And it's that on screen. In which case, there should be more of her. I mean, I understand there's not a huge amount of development of a a new companion the first time they appear, but there's usually more than this. Yeah, there is. There is. Even her scene with K-9, where they're establishing a bond after she insults him, is changed in such a way that it gives Romana less to say, strangely enough. Than the robot dog. Yeah, and it just doesn't really... Ah, there's... I think I, I my favorite line from the book may have been K-9 standing impassively over his, over his victims, buzzing quietly to himself. <laughs> there, there are some very funny moments like that. Yeah. But two, the reason that she is, is there is to help the doctor find these keys, and she has the tracer 
that's her, you know, sonic screwdriver. Yep. <laughs> her tool that she is supposed to be using. It basically feels like when she's with the doctor, he's the one kind of leading. And then when she's separated from him, it ends up being taken from her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, and make sure that we give it the correct name that Martyr has given it. It's not the Tracer, even though it's going to be called that in every other story. It's the, in fact, I can't even remember the damn thing's name. It's like Loku something. Loku Moturter or some, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's basically in Martyr saying, well, Tracer doesn't work. Let's call it this. It's giving but, it a necessarily difficult name. Like, yeah. Just call it what it is. Yeah. Exactly. It's basically a wand. It's a magic wand, and it traces bits of the segment, and it changes them as well. So, it's like, why? Why do you have to do this to a store that's perfectly serviceable on its own? Now that's damning with some faint praise. Perfectly serviceable. I hate to say that, but it's true of this story, that Robert Holmes isn't trying to write Ulysses. For that matter, he's not even trying to write Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. He's not. I really could not handle Ulysses this week. Well, see, there you go. And nor could Robert Holmes. He knows that (laughs) all he's trying to do is put in these new characters, and he's trying to bring in Romana in a way that is engaging and fun to us. And she is on screen. She's not really on the page. She still gets some of the trash talking about his academic record, which we talked about. We don't get any of the trash talking about his age. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yes. You're sulking. I'm not sulking. That's ridiculous for somebody as old as you are. I'm not old. (sighs) What? 759. 756. That's not old. It's just mature. You've lost count somewhere. Well, I ought to know my own age. Yes, but after the first few centuries, I expect things get a bit foggy, don't they? (laughs) It's hilarious. They have this wonderful back and forth. At one point, she says, you know, I was prepared to be impressed with you. And the doctor says, indeed. And it just goes from there. We don't get any of that on the page. Instead, we get him calling her my dear all the time. Like he's Trout. It's just so strange that that relationship is changed in such a way to make it less interesting and not more so i was just was thinking about how this kind of correlates to the current marvel universe i guess the Mm. second era or whatever however they're calling it just with the infinity stones and thanos how (laughs) he was collecting all of them for his infinity gauntlet i don't know we've talked about before how these kind of tropes appear has this been done before where there was kind of this idea of a all-powerful item that is separated into pieces you know collect them all Voldemort separating his soul into different <laughs> parts well the multi-part MacGuffin yeah I'm not sure what the uber text would have been for that <laughs> I I do know that in this case it came directly from Graham Williams who wanted to do this the season before yeah Yeah, if he'd had his way, and if the scripts hadn't all been commissioned already, he would have done this with Leela, which would have been interesting. But instead, I'm not quite sure where it comes from. God, you've really posed me a stickler there, Dalton, because this seems like something I should know the answer to. I feel like I should also, and yet here we are, coming up. I don't know that I'm even expecting an answer, but it's just kind of this idea 
again, that has shown up in our time in 40, 30, 40 years down the road uh, yeah. as something that is as a framing device uh, right. for our hero. But it should be a framing device for adventure so that we have the overarching goal of, you know, finding this piece, etc. For a story that's more enjoyable or more profound. Yeah. It just feels like it's a, a styrofoam shell with cotton wool inside. Which is strange, because it's not that much heavier on screen, but still, it's still pretty enjoyable when you watch it on screen. It's it's nothing big. I didn't realize what I was getting into exactly, so I remember thinking for the second half, okay, aren't we going to see the Black Guardian at some point? Yes! But I, I, didn't, know, I didn't realize that they were only going to find one piece in this story, of all the pieces and at the end, the doctor says something like, oh, you know, number one of 75 different pieces or whatever. Like, oh, look at the time. I'm about to die sometime in the next few decades. I'm sorry, Tony, I can't join you anymore. <laughs> I, I felt sentenced to the next several stories instead of, oh, well, I, I can't wait to see how this turns out. Or, oh, what a fun new cast of characters. Felt like some, a course of antibiotics that I've been told I, I needed to take all of oh, for them to take effect. Please don't mention antibiotics right now. Here's the thing. I cannot promise you that all of the next five stories will be classics. I simply can't do that. We're far enough into the Tom Baker era that we're going to get some real stinkers coming down the pike. That being said, Terrence Dix is going to adapt most of those. The ones that he doesn't adapt will be pretty good, even better in some ways. This is the sort of story that Terrence Dix is actually great at yeah which is machinations of overambitious small people mm -hmm. of bureaucrats and pretenders to the throne and petty criminals and whatnot and there are always different levels of ministers trying to maneuver this and that mm -hmm. and yes he repeats himself a lot but he does have a very good handle on that kind of story yeah if i were to assign ian martyr to one story from this season i would have assigned him to the third story stones of blood because that would have allowed him to let his freak flag fly <laughs> Seriously, there is so much potential gore in that story that he would have just been like a kid in a candy store. Well, everything about this feels mismatched. It mm -hmm. feels like the writer is mismatched with the story and the tone is mismatched with the story. Perhaps our time for reading is mismatched with, I, I don't know, I think parts of my brain are mismatched to, to one another this week. But I, I know I've used this line too many times on the podcast, but it doesn't quite set up. Right. There's something that there's no overarching structure that seems that interesting. It's just go find object. They found the object. The journey along the way is not interesting. Yeah. The only thing I thought that was interesting was Garen and Onstoff bickering and having one-liners. And you have such fun with this story when you watch it. Some of that is down to Tom Baker being an utter clown because the scene where the graph in decay hits him in the face with the gauntlet Actually, no, it's not him that gets hit in the face with the gauntlet. It is Aaron in the book. And the doctor takes it away menacingly and all that. On screen, the graph hits the doctor in the face with the gauntlet, and he just grabs it and hits him casually back in the face. <laughs> it's 
bit of casual brutality with them too. Yeah, well, that's just it. Any brutality in the story is pretty much casual on stream, to the point that the head of serials basically had to say to Graham Williams, okay, you need to tone down the jokiness. (laughs) At which point Graham Williams wanted to say, wait a minute, you told me to up the joke content because it was getting too dark. So there was just no way around it. And I think that may be what's happening with this book too. That being said, there are a few things that Martyr does well. That whole bit with the accents is extended just a tad bit. I have to give him props for his commitment to the Romana Veratralunda bit, because on screen she says that exactly twice, I believe. On the page, he has to type it out every single time all eight syllables every time, probably on a typewriter that presumably didn't have any macro keys. And we have a lot of circumstantial evidence that he was being paid by the character. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing, though. I can't find anything about this. It's not a book that Nigel Robinson would have been there to commission because this is a few years before Nigel Robinson. So he can't tell us why it was commissioned this way. 144 pages for a four-parter is ridiculous. The Rescue, I think, is about that long for a two-parter. But then in that case, Ian Martyr is saying, hey, we've got a two-parter here. Let's make this an epic. And he does. But that's toward the end of his life. And he's really at the top of his game at that point. This is not the top of his game. I think it's this on stuff may have said it best. He's in the catacombs and he's told everyone comes here in the end. And he says, well, I don't want to stay, not just yet. And it does feel like we're sort of loitering in the grave in this one here. <laughs> well, just it feels like a chore. We have to have yeah. a novelization of this story. We have to have this story to introduce the character and the premise of these multiple stories. We have to do this. We have to do that. I, I don't get a sense of much of anyone having a good time on this one or sort of uh, getting their vision on the page either of something more sort of creative or profound either. No, which is strange because in the story, the actor playing Garen is hamming it up. In fact, there's there's a joke about his hamminess in the book that isn't on screen. Tom Baker is absolutely having a great time. And even the guest cast who aren't getting to do much jokiness are having a wonderful time with it. The actor playing Binro is marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. You feel that death on screen when it happens. But you also get a building of his relationship with Unstoff that you don't get on the page because on the page, for some reason, and I don't know why Martyr did this, they immediately meet. Unstoff hears about the heresy. He immediately tells him he's from the stars. Binro swallows that, (laughs) Like the ice god swallowing the sun. And it's fine. Yet on screen, there are a couple scenes between those two so that you get what feels like a building of that relationship. It doesn't feel earned on the page at all. Which is not good writing, just to be honest. That and let's talk about the elephant in the room. The doctor straight up murders the graph at the end. Yeah. By that point, I was... So hardened by murders I had witnessed in this book. No, I think I'm being a little bit silly, but it's speaking <laughs> of casual brutality, it like I said, it wasn't profound, it wasn't entertaining, it was just ugly. And normally mm. I notice when the doctor either murders someone or wants to or laughs at someone else doing it, and it seems to not, you know, sit well with the character for me. I had actually forgotten that even happened. Yeah. Because the doctor is so different in this book. 
And you would think that Ian Martyr, of all people, would know what the Tom Baker Doctor is like, but for some reason the Doctor feels very off here. I'd like to float a theory. Garen is explaining, uh, he's giving his tour of the various sacred artifacts that he's never seen before, and he says, that's, that's the Scringe Stone <laughs> that keeps you from getting the Scringe. But of course it's not real. Perhaps <laughs> everyone involved with this book has the Scringe. <laughs> They had a case of the scringe. We contracted the scringe when reading it. I'm not quite sure what the scringe is, but I think it's like the itis, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I'm on antibiotics for something, so maybe it's the scringe. If only you had the scringe stone. Yeah, I know, right? Yet another of Robert Holmes's most valuable elements in the universe, because that's always in a Robert Holmes script. But that barely lands, too, because Ian Martyr doesn't really emphasize it enough. There's so much... Ah, oh, this book makes me so mad. Well, we had a lot of evil mining corporations that colonize and or entirely consume planets. And it's a story that Doctor Who has done a lot. But there are, I think, always relevant, interesting things to find in that story. Here, once again, we seem to forget, oh, well, maybe this whole planet will just be eventually consumed by a corporation or by this petty tyrant who wants to use it as a launching point for his war. There wasn't a, a sort of in the background looming sense like we've had in other stories that the entire society might be destroyed Yeah. Um, over, over a fight that's not even their fight. And I, that's a cliche story, but it's a cliche that I appreciate that we don't even have here for sort of a, a sense of menace overall. Yeah. There's no sense of consequence, just just death. And there should be, because Martyr actually does at one point go out of his way to make the Graf Vindicay really, really nasty. He has that added scene where he has him trying to get these two scorpion-like creatures to fight right by the fireplace, and when they won't, he just covers them up with burning ash to kill both of them. And that shows you the kind of person we're dealing with. But then he doesn't do anything with it. Well, and at the end, we do have something that's the closest thing we have to touching. We're blanking out on the name of his aide right now, but when he... Oh, Sherlock. Yes, when Sherlock dies, he does actually seem genuinely to, to be touched and, and to grieve him in a way that we wouldn't necessarily have expected, thought it might have been kind of dismissive of, oh, you know, that, that particular servant is dead. Oh, and he becomes unhinged. Yes. Yeah. So that was, I guess, the most development we had for him. And you have to see that performance on screen to believe it, because that actor decides to just dig his incisors right into the scenery at that point. It's a brilliant scene, but well, I wouldn't say brilliant, but it's definitely fun. It's not fun on the page. And this should be fun on the page. This should have been fun. Well, I think Garen once again says it best. This is a strictly hit and run game. One bite and away. No banquets. We had one bite and away. Certainly no banquet here definitely not. Anything else you want to say about it before we move on to Goodreads? <laughs> I guess that's my answer, isn't it? <laughs> what is property at such a time as this? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> listeners, trust me, the next episode will more than make up for this one. I can guarantee it. I fear that we are enacting the very thing that we are criticizing, which is not being particularly profound or light and entertaining. Well, I, I think we're being entertaining <laughs> enough, but definitely we can't give this the profundity that A. and Martyr's trying to give to it because it's just not there to give to it. So let's just do We that. heard you the first time, Daddy O. Yeah, oh, God. Oh, that's Ian Martyr. Thanks. That's Ian Martyr. <laughs> I, I managed to uh, forget. The Daddy O part you is know. Ian Martyr. And it's like, oh, Christ almighty, really? I'm a man of few words, but usually the ones I have are good ones. <laughs> 
better than daddy that's for sure. <laughs> All right, then. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own rating. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.45, so I'm kind of surprised at that. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives it 4 stars and says, In my early days of target rating, I was kind of annoyed that Ian Martyr didn't follow the Terrence Stick style of adapting the script exactly as it appeared on my screen. In the intervening years, my tastes have changed, I hope for the better and I've come to appreciate this Target novel a great deal. It's got a good script by Robert Holmes, and it's a solid adaptation. It may be one of the best fourth Doctor Target books of its era. Uh, well, I don't know, Michael. On the other end of the spectrum, our Patreon Dave Davis gives it two stars and says, I found this a disappointing book, though, to be fair, I wasn't that keen on the televised story in the first place, thinking most of it dull. Martyr has made four annoying changes in the first chapter alone. The first two concern the TARDIS doors. In Modern Who, the inside of the doors to the outside are a mirror of the police box doors on the outside, but at this point in the show they are solid and larger than the outside, yet Martyr has the light shining through the frosted glass. On screen, the light shines through the partly open doors. The doors are open with a brass door handle, whereas on screen they're operated with a lever on the console. At first, I couldn't understand how a former companion could get something so basic so wrong, but I realized, although Harry made two journeys aboard the TARDIS, we only saw him going into or coming out of the police box prop. Martyr probably never saw the console set, as it wasn't used during his time on the show, so it would have been in storage. Also, he wrote the book before the internet, so he would have had difficulty finding photo references. Then there's the dialogue changes. On screen, Romana thinks she was sent by the president of Gallifrey to help the Doctor. That's true. But in the book, she knows it's the White Guardian. I can't remember when she finds out the truth. I remember it's the third story. But this might have confusing ramifications for a lit future book. Yep, it sure will. The other dialogue change in Chapter 1 really annoys me. When the Doctor asks the White Guardian what will happen to him if he refuses the mission, the Guardian tells him that nothing will happen to the Doctor ever. This benign threat or possibly malignant reassurance, I love that phrase, malignant reassurance, has led some fans to speculate that the White Guardian doesn't really appear at all and it's just the Black Guardian in disguise. That is a very good fan theory. Martyr seems to have decided to remove all doubt and make the Guardian into a B-movie villain, replacing the subtle line with, You will not refuse, Doctor! I managed to get to the end of the book, but I was racing through it as quickly as I could, you and me both. I'm not paying too much attention on the way. Yeah, same here. Nothing leapt out to grab my attention. I was glad to get it over with. I expected better from Ian Martyr. And finally, Damon on our Goodreads group gives it three stars and says, Good Robert Holmes character pairings as usual, and also nice to read an Ian Martyr book to break up Uncle Terrence's style of penmanship. A book that's better than the TV show due to budget restraints. It's a great start to the key to time arc and a fantastic introduction to Romana. So, out of five stars, Dalton, what would you give this one? I'm going to agree with Damon and give it three. It feels bloated and too much, but 
I don't think that Ian Martyr's writing is horrible. It's just mm-hmm. he should have edited himself. <laughs> the, right. The story itself, what he did, it's totally tonally just off. But his writing isn't poor. <laughs> so I can't I can't be mad about that. There's some things that just bug me about the story itself. The second half mainly just being too long and oh, and, yeah. and too repetitive with the back and forth. But he's a good writer. He did a good job with the <laughs> with the writing. <laughs> um, right. But just the story itself feels very overly long and, and bloated. Like I said earlier, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes with the key to time arc. So, yeah, three three for me. Not the worst thing we've ever read. Not the best thing we've ever read. And Allison, out of five stars? I'm going to go 1.5, which Ooh. isn't damning, but I haven't been that low in a while. It's not terrible. I actually went lower than I would have thinking that it was an awful story and that Martyr had made it a little more enjoyable. And now it sounds like he actually made it a little worse. Although with an entertaining style. But like I said, I don't mean that is incredibly negative, just somewhat mediocrely negative like this story. <laughs> okay. And as for me, I'm really torn. Part of me wants to give it a 2, and part of me wants to give it a 2.5. I, I think I'm going to be kinder and say a 2.5, simply because, as you said, Dalton, Ian Martyr at his worst is still Ian Martyr. And his prose style is enough to elevate even a fairly bad book. The only problem is, this is a fairly bad book, mainly because he's trying a little too hard with a script that I can almost guarantee you that Robert Holmes didn't try hard at at all. Mainly because Robert Holmes is a really good writer and can do this sort of light and airy script really well, this should have been a light and airy book. It should not have been 144 pages. Even after, what, four to five years of us doing these things together, this should not have felt like the slog that it did. In fact, I think I may have just talked myself into giving it the two. <laughs> well, I have often said, oh, now I've got to read my Doctor Who novel and do my homework. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I'm really glad that I read this. This actually had some, some interesting, thoughtful things in it. Or I think that was a fun read, a beach read. But this one, I was resentful. Yeah. it's not, I'm sorry, Ian. You, you know we love you. Yeah, and, and so was I. And for me to be resentful, <laughs> having to do the reading. Now, a listener might point out that we were not required to read this. No. No, you weren't. I mean, you two, could, you two could have begged off this one, and I would have been, okay, I'll get two more panelists. But I would still have and had to do it. they would have been resentful. Yes, they would have. I, well, I don't know. I mean, we, we might have gotten somebody in who really loved it. Or maybe we would have never been interested in reading a Doctor Who novel again. Possibly. Yeah, that's the thing. And with this one, it's kind of hard to tell which way they would have gone with it. Well, thank you all. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're doing a special episode in which we look at both the original fan-produced novelization by David Bishop and the recently released official novelization by James Goss of Douglas Adams' script for The Pirate Planet. So you're getting two for the price of one. This one's going to take a while to prepare for, though, so don't expect it right away. Whenever this episode drops, please expect that one not the usual two weeks after, probably three, because 
it's gonna take us a bit to get through both books, but at least the story is better? Yeah. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordolic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.